0: This podcast is brought to you by Pastor Stormy Swann and Faith Christian Family Church of Lubbock, Texas. For more information, please visit faithchurchlubbock.com. One of our main scripture texts was Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6, which said, God is a jealous God, visiting or punishing the iniquities of fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. So again, there's stuff that comes down through our bloodline but the, uh, the interesting verse of that is verse 6. It says, but he shows mercy or love to the thousands. And so something happens when we begin to respond to the things of God. So we're going to begin today. This is our last Sunday on it, okay? Ezekiel chapter 18. I encourage you to read the entire chapter, but we're going to begin in verse 26. When a righteous man turns from his righteousness. So when a righteous man has been righteous, he turns from his righteousness. His behaviors and his conduct begins to change. He commits iniquity and dies in it. it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he committed and does what is life lawful and right, he preserves himself alive. So he uses a phrase in there, turn away. And when I turn away from a righteous man to unrighteousness, he says the reward is a death-like existence. But when I'm wicked and I turn to the things of God, if you'll note, he said he would preserve your life. And so these all become choices for us. Verse number 28. Because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions and the word transgressions means a trespass, to rebel, or even to revolt. And he goes on to say, which he committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not fair. The way of the Lord is not right. Now, how many of you have ever done that? When you saw certain scriptures or passages in the Bible and you may have stomped your foot and said, that's not fair. That's not right. Well, evidently, that's what the people of this time were doing. But watch the response here. O house of Israel, is not my ways which are fair and right, and your ways which are not fair or right? So you know what God does? He says his ways are right. It's our ways that are wrong. And that's still true. Still true to this day. Verse 28. Because he considers and turns away from all his transgressions which he committed, he shall surely live and not die. Yet the house of the Lord says, the way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, is not my ways which are fair and your ways which are unfair? Therefore, I will judge you. I will judge each of you, O house of Israel, one according to his ways. And There's a truth right there. There's a nugget for every one of us that all of us are going to be judged according to our ways, our behaviors, and our conducts. says the Lord God, repent and turn from all your transgressions. Now, if you'll notice something there, he specifically said, repent and turn. Now, when I look at the Word of God there, I have the opportunity, do I accept this or do I reject this? And so when we talk about the word repentance, the word repentance is a spiritual exercise or a spiritual activity that God says, it's your responsibility. It's you and mine's choice whether we truly repent or not. And so this is what he's getting over to. Why is it so critical that we repent and turn? Well, look at the last part there. So that iniquity will not be your ruin. So he tells us right here that as I continue to live in the sin of my bloodline, iniquities that that are a certain behavior or pattern in my life, the ultimate goal is ruin. And that's the devil's desire for every one of us. So we begin to see some things. Number one, when I repent, repentance is an activity that is from my heart that is confessed from my mouth. If you confess your sin, when it says turn, That's where I believe the grace of God really kicks in. How many of you have tried to turn from sin or certain things in your own own, uh, actions? I've tried that. But something begins to happen when I say, Father God, I welcome your grace to help me change. Now remember, grace is an empowerment. And so the devil's desire for every one of us is to get us off track and his goal is to bring ruin. John 10.10 10 says, The thief comes not but to kill, steal, and destroy. So his desire is to bring ruin. So when we begin to look at this, now I'm just going to quote three passages for you. You may want to write these down. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Your adversary, your opponent, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. May ruin. Now think about that word may. It doesn't say seeking whom he will devour. It says he may devour. And so the word may is rooted in like permission. How would we give the opponent, the adversary, permission in our lives? Well, Ephesians 4.27 says, Don't give place to the devil. One of our main scripture texts in this series was Proverbs 26.2. It says, A curse can only come with a cause. So when we begin to open the door to sin in our life, we give the devil legal opportunity or permission to come. But when I repent of my sin, it erases his legal uh, opportunity or permission to come. That's why repentance is so powerful. Repentance is such a blessing. So don't look at it as a negative. Look at it as a positive, And things begin to happen when I repent and I turn. Same chapter, verse 31. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you've committed and get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? How do I get a new heart and how do I get a new spirit? The only way that happens... It's when I repent of my sin and ask Jesus to come into my life. Second Corinthians 5, 17 says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away and all things have become new. So again, when I give my heart to Jesus and I confess sin, something begins to happen. Verse 32, For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Now, this was one of the most important messages or public messages that Ezekiel ever spoke. He specifically said, turn and live. And when he said that, his word was to generate faith in a God who forgives sin. So now I begin to look at all this, and this is our last Sunday on this. And the question began to jump out. Have I ever repented of my sin, yet those sins still are active in my life? They haven't changed. But I understand when the Word of God says that if I'll confess my sin, he'll, he'll cleanse me and, and he'll, he'll uh, restore me. So again, what happens biblically when I repent but nothing change? Is that possible? Go with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and this is why it's important you take some notes today. I encourage you to read this whole chapter, but I'm going to begin in verse number 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. And there's some things in here biblically that'll answer that question. And not only answer that question, I believe today it's going to get us on the right track. Verse 8, Apostle Paul speaking, he said, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. Now, most believe that this was his first letter in 1 Corinthians, the, the first part there that he wrote to them, and he corrects them really, really hard. And he said, but I don't regret what I wrote to you. He goes on to say, For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. It may have caused you some pain on the inside, but only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow or your grief led to repentance. And so when we begin to look at this, this is literally biblical what he's talking about because in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it says, The goodness of God leads us to repentance. Not the ugliness of God, but the goodness of God leads me to repentance. So he says right here, Not that I rejoice that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss or pain for us in nothing. So what he's getting over here is repentance requires a turning point, but it also requires ownership. That I can't make excuses. We're very good at making excuses. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Bob Principle, but the Bob Principle goes like this. If Bob has a problem with Dick, and Bob has a problem with Gary, and Bob has a problem with Richard, Bob's probably the problem. See, a lot of times, it's easier to blame other people. I mean, we can go back to the Garden of Eden. Remember when God corrected Adam, and you know what Adam's first response was? It was that woman you gave me. And then he asked Eve, and she said, the devil made me do it. See, we're all good at doing that. But here, the truth made them do some things that took ownership of what they had done. Verse 10. For godly sorrow, godly grief, produces or leads to repentance. Wow. That's the gold of godly grief or godly sorrow. It's to lead us to repentance. And watch what repentance does, which leads us to salvation. So right there in that nugget, he informs me and you, there's no way to salvation unless you repent. So when I confess my sin, something begins to happen. But as I looked at this verse, some things became very clear in the Amplified. The Amplified translation says it this way. It leads and contributes to salvation and deliverance from evil. Salvation and deliverance from evil. What does? Repentance. So right here he tells me that when I repent of my sins and ask Jesus to come into my life, at salvation. How many of you believe that? I believe that's the way you get saved. But it's interesting right there that he said also repentance would lead to deliverance. Something happens when I obey the Scriptures. Keep reading. Not to be regretted. Now listen here. This is the last part. This is the one that really was an eye-opener to me. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, the Apostle Paul tells us two things right here. There's two types of sorrow. There's a godly sorrow that he said would lead to salvation and deliverance. But there's a worldly sorrow that he said specifically would lead to death. So what's the difference in the two? One of them is grieved because of the sin in their life that I did. The other one, the worldly sorrow, is I got caught. I say I'm sorry, but the only reason I said that is because I got caught, and I don't want to suffer the consequences that go with getting caught. So now we begin to look at repentance in a little bit different direction. And so as I read this right here, the Holy Spirit begins to ask me that question. What type of repentance did you live? Now to understand this, go with me to 1 Samuel 15. I'm going to be in 1 Samuel 15, and then 2 Samuel 12. Again, I encourage you to take these notes here. And so where we're going with this, guys, is there's two two men in the Bible here we're going to study. Both were kings. One's name was King Saul, the other was King David. So we begin... In 1 Samuel 15, verse 1. And what you're going to see, you're going to see the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. 1 Samuel 15, verse 1. Samuel, who was the prophet, also said to Saul, who was the king, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. So understand this. Just because Saul was the king, he wasn't exempt from obeying the word of God. He still had to obey Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came out of Egypt. So what this is talking about, when the Israelites came up out of Egypt and they're on the way to the promised land, they cross into the, across the Jordan and these, these people, the Malachites, they ambush them. Verse 3, now God, now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have And do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, if Samuel would have looked at Saul and said, is this clear? Saul would have said, Crystal, I'm to wipe them out. Every one of them, I'm going to eliminate every one of them. But to shorten this up a little bit, look in verse 9 and watch what happens but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen, and the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worsely they utterly destroyed. Now when you begin to look at this right here, he didn't obey. It said they were unwilling. And so when it comes down to obedience to God, I'm either willing or I'm unwilling. So we see right there that this king he didn't do what God asked him to do. In James chapter 4, it says this, He who knows to do good but doesn't do it, it's sin. So when I disobey God like this, understand, you can try to camouflage it any way you want. In God's eyes, it's sin. So now, oh uh, Saul's disobeyed God. And Samuel begins to confront him and I gotta, I gotta skip through here to get where we're going. Same chapter verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because, and listen to what he says. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, if you'll look, he, he said, I, I sin, but he identifies something in his heart. It was because I I chose to listen to people. I chose to obey people. And if you'll note there, he doesn't mention one thing about God. Keep reading. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. That all sounds very spiritual, but what begins to take place is for Saul to have Samuel with him. It showed that the man of God supported him in a public declaration before the people But Saul knew that if Samuel didn't go with him, it would tell the people that he wasn't right in God's eyes. And so that was the only reason he wanted him to go worship. Verse number 26, But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Now when he says he's better than you, God creates us all equal. But he was better than him in his attitude not only of repentance but in obeying God. Now who this is talking about? This is talking about King David. And so he begins to speak what's going to take place. Verse 29. Also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for God is not a man that he should relent. God's not a man that he should change his mind. Now we get to verse 30, and this is the one that you can really highlight. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Now when you read this, it would be like he's standing there looking at the prophet, and he said, I've sinned. Sounds like he's very spiritual, doesn't it? But keep reading. Yet, honor me now. Honor me now. In other words, when you begin to see this, he doesn't mention anything about God. His repentance is reflection of only him. Honor me now before the elders and before my people Israel and would turn with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So when you look at his repentance right here, his sorrow was all about himself. He was more concerned about how he would be viewed in front of the people. I don't want my image tarnished before people. Again, there was not one thing that was mentioned here about God. So now you begin to see a heart that repents more because I got caught than breaking God's heart. Now turn just a couple of pages there to 2 Samuel 12. And as you go to 2 Samuel 12, I don't have time to read the story to you, okay? I'm going to paraphrase it for you. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 1, it says that in the spring was the time when kings went out to battle. But for some reason, the king named David, he doesn't go out. He stays at home. And so I don't know if he's bored. I don't know if it's halftime of the NBA playoffs. I don't know why. But he walks out onto the, the, the balcony of his house. And he begins to gaze across the courtyard and he sees a woman bathing. Now, there was nothing wrong with the woman bathing. She wasn't doing anything wrong. But, but, but King David here, he begins to have eyes for that woman. Be careful little eyes, what you see. And he began to inquire this woman. And one of the men he began to inquire said, Hey, King, wait a minute. She's a married woman. But that doesn't faze him. And so, he does what the Bible calls sexual sin, adultery. He was married and she was married. I'm going to throw a little, little tidbit in here for you today. Allow the Bible to define sexual sin. Don't allow man to define sexual sin, okay? That's where we've gotten in trouble when we allow man to say, this is sin and this isn't sin. You better stay with the B-I-B-L-E, okay? Because when I don't, I get into huge problems. So the Bible said that he got into adultery, he got into sexual sin. But it didn't stop there. To cover his sin, the snowball effect begins to take place. And now he has to manipulate a murder against this woman named Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And so here's how the goodness of God works, even when me and you sin. God gives every one of us space or time to repent. The ultimate goal of God is that, that, that the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes upon us and we say, Father God, I blew it. I sinned and I sinned and I sinned. But when we don't do it, God will send a, mo- a woman or a man of God across your path to confront you. Not in an ugly way. That's how much God loves you. And He said, listen, we've got to deal with this sin issue. And if I won't listen to the man or woman of God, then according to the Bible, you're turned over to the tormentors, and that gets really ugly then. So what happens here, just as as Saul was sent a man of God, the, the, the prophet Samuel, God sends King David, a man of God, a man named Nathan. And Nathan begins to confront David with the sin. Now, just one verse. 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. Now watch the difference here. So he's been confronted with his sin. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Look at the difference. When Saul was confronted, he said, I've sinned, yet honor me in front of all these people. When David sinned, He said, I've sinned against the Lord. It broke his heart that the Lord had to witness what he did. And so now you begin to see the difference between a a godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. And actually when you look back at what King Saul did, he was more concerned about the consequences of his sin. Will I be removed from my position as leadership? Will I be removed from the praise and worship team? Will I be removed from my public uh, uh, appearance? What will people think? He was more concerned about that than he was with breaking God's heart. And when I look at this, this is how the Lord begins to deal with me and says, How have you repented? Turn with me to Psalm 51 i got just a couple more passages, about 20 more. If you're a visitor, I'm just kidding, okay? Psalm 51. The reason I want to read this psalm is it specifically says this psalm was written when Nathan confronted David. Now I want you to watch how he takes ownership of this. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your love and kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my wife's transgressions. It's not what it says. It says, "Blot out my transgressions." Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression. My sin is always before me. And against you, you only have I sinned. Now that tells me right there, this is a man with a godly sorrow who didn't try to pass the buck on the others. He didn't say, but God, if that woman wouldn't have been bathed in that night. No, he began to acknowledge, only against you have I sinned. Same chapter, start with me in verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Everything that he asked to do had to do with the inside of him, had to do with his heart. Not one time did He say, Don't boot me from being king. Don't don't take away my rewards. Don't embarrass me in front of people. No, He said, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Bring me back to your presence. Actually, Psalm 51.10 in the message says, Lord, shape a Genesis week in the chaos of my life. And so now you begin to see what happens when someone repents from a heart that says, Man, Father God, I don't want to disappoint you. But if I don't repent that way, what happens? Well, I'm glad you asked. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter 2, and this is the one we'll end with. 2 Peter 2. Where's that at? Hebrews, James, and you'll come into the Peter's. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. Now, I'm reading this in the New King James. There's a lot of better translations to help you understand this. And I'll try to read some of them as it says. Second Peter 2, verse 22. Now watch this, guys. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, Actually, that verse is Proverbs 26, verse 11, is where a lot of this is at. But listen to what it says A dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed, or a pig being washed, returns to the mud. As I look at this, listen to what it's saying here. As a human being that only repents from a worldly sorrow, the words that he says there, you'll go back to your sin. You'll return to your sin. You'll repeat it. You'll be driven back to it like it's a magnet. Just as a pig that's clean goes back to its mud. And I looked at that and I began to say, Father God, I don't want to live that way. I don't want to do that. And so I believe the scriptures that in 1 John 1, 9, that he says that if you'll confess your sin, he'll not only forgive you, he'll cleanse you. The cleansing part is this, he'll restore you. He'll bring you back how he wants you. But again, it it takes a heart. It takes a heart that says, Father God, I, I don't want to disappoint you. You know, I had a man in my office, and there were some things that had took place in his life, and he said, Pastor, I think everything's good. And I looked at him, and I said, I don't think so. And he said, why do you say that? And I said, because of the lack of true repentance. And that same verse there, I quoted to him, I said, as a dog returns to his vomit, and as a pig returns to its mud, so will I if I don't repent accurately and with a true heart that says, Lord, I don't want to break your heart anymore. See, it began to answer questions to me there because oftentimes, we come before a God who doesn't lie. He doesn't relent. He doesn't change. And so you know what that tells me? God doesn't blow it. God's word is precise and accurate, so if God's not the problem, Bob's the problem. Thank you for listening today. For more information, please visit faithchurchlubick.com.